Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted learns all about the world of recovery yoga with author and certified yoga instructor Kitsuki Hawk. Kitsuki is the founder of Yoga Teacher Specialty Training Program, SOAR, Success Over Addiction and Relapse. You can find her books like Yogic Tools for Recovery or Yoga and the 12-Step Path on Amazon. Enjoy the show. Addiction and Yoga it seems an unlikely pair. I mean, the science of addiction has often been associated with the classic reward pathway in the brain. This pathway lies in the center of the brain and is responsible for driving our feelings of motivation, reward, and behavior. I mean, the National Institute of Health reported that the mesolimbic dopamine pathway is thought to play a primary role in the reward system. It actually connects the ventral tegmental area, referred to as the VTA, which is one of the principal dopamine-producing areas in the brain, with the nucleus accumbens, an area found in the ventral striatum that is strongly associated with, of course, motivation and reward. It is here where substances begin to play their role. They begin to alter the neurochemistry. In the case of drinking alcohol or or maybe even snorting a line of cocaine, we can see an increase of dopamine released in the neural reward pathway in the brain. These pathways become so habituated over time that they begin to be activated and show increases even when individuals see people, places, and things that remind them of drinking or using drugs, and they're not even using them. With addiction, people can begin to lose touch with their bodies as they become more addicted to alcohol or drugs. They can even begin to proverbially numb out and avoid feeling their feelings by using drugs and alcohol. They can replace feeling happy with feeling happy only when they're using, for example, like a line of cocaine or binge drinking. But the problem here is it's only short-lived and always demands another day of drinking or using. Addiction can become an out-of-body experience all the time. Yoga, on the other hand, has been defined as the link between mind, body, and spirit. It is intricately connected to our movement and breath, as well as the true and deep spirit that is always with us. Yoga classes are popping up everywhere these days, offering all different types of styles and levels of intensity, and more and more people have gotten on board. Yoga master Eric Schiffman has defined yoga as a way of learning to be centered in action so that you always have the clearest perspective on what is happening and are therefore able to respond most appropriately. Moving into stillness to experience your primary nature is really the theme of yoga. Yoga teacher Gary Craftson has said yoga is for everyone and has always been ever since ancient times. Yoga has been continuously adapted to suit the needs of individuals from different cultures and traditions. From the young to the old, all have been welcome. But what if there was a connection between the outer body experience of addiction and the inner body experience of yoga? What if they could be made the perfect pairing? Recovery yoga as a bridge to a recovery life around feeling feelings, being present, and deep understanding and love for oneself. Then what? Well, I am with the amazing Kitsky Hawk. Mm-hmm. Um, who has uh, blessed the studio with her presence today. She is just a fabulous woman. She's 
written now two books. She's got a workbook coming out. We're going to talk about that as well today. But I just want to extend a warm welcome and thank you for taking the time um, to spend with us today. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm, I'm passionate about my recovery. Yeah, I can, I can just tell that. See, I have her on the video screen, and I'm telling you, there's like a glow that comes off this woman. It's like, it's a great vibe. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah, so where are you, where, where are you based out of? Yeah, I'm in San Jose, California, uh, and I, um, I got sober up in the city, up in San Francisco, and I was there for two months uh, living with my drug dealer boyfriend because, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of choice you make when you're an addict is like, let, let me get close to the source. <laughs> yeah. If you got the dope, I'll move in with you. <laughs> yeah. so, and I, I decided that I didn't need to, that chapter of my life is called Against All Odds because I'm very dramatic. So against all odds, she stopped drinking. So I was living with, with my with my dealer boyfriend and I realized I I, I couldn't I couldn't do that. I didn't need to do that. So I moved down here to San Jose where my mom, who was li- she's since passed, but she was living here and I lived in her garage with my two kids. And uh, so that that's was my big move. Luckily, uh, four blocks from the Alano Club. The, the local Alano Club and three blocks from my kids' um, elementary school. And that's how I started being a real person again. Oh, great, great. Well, why don't we, I think we're just going to jump right into it. And sure. maybe if you could you know, tell us about your addiction to recovery story. Like, when did it all, at least in your own mind, start? I mean, some people yeah. trace it back to like the first time they used or drank. Other people, they might have done that, but maybe it doesn't really hit till later. So, and yeah. everybody's different. Well, I am an adult child of an alcoholic. No. What the heck? Okay. I am the adult child of an alcoholic, and, um, uh, and my dad had uh, some uh, mental illness. Uh, but, you know, that they were a generation who soldiered on, and indeed they did. I moved a lot when I was a kid. So moved not just within a neighborhood, but countries. We moved to Lebanon and then Kuwait and then back to Lebanon and then eventually back to the States. So we did some real big movement, which meant that a chaos was a real part of my usual and customary way of, of living. When we got back to the States and my, my dad stayed overseas and, and uh, we were in San Francisco, um, I was uh, 13 and uh, it was the 60s and I was in San Francisco. 60s in Frisco, wow. Yes. So, you know, and, and I was, you know, an outcast. I, at that time, I had a British accent. I hadn't gone to school with everybody. I was in ninth grade. Everybody had been in school, you know, at least at that school for two prior years. Uh, the school was, was seven, eight, nine, and then you have uh, 10, 11, and 12 in high school. So anyway, so I'm coming in at the last year of junior high, and um you know, so I hung out with all the other uh, misfits and uh, and uh, also rans, and um, you know, eventually cutting school and taking drugs seemed like a really natural thing to do. You know, part of me wanted to belong to school, and I had been raised in a in a British and German environment where you know you stand up when the teacher stands 
walks in the room and you say, good morning, teacher, and then you sit down and you do not move unless the teacher tells you you can move. And here I am in San Francisco and the kids are sitting with their legs on the desk and back, you know, blowing spitballs through their ballpoint pens. And oh, it was just like, it was a madhouse. Culture so, shock. Yeah, I'm shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> so, but I didn't, so I didn't feel an affinity in the classroom, although I had a longing to be in the classroom. And, but I felt an affinity outside the classroom. And, you know, dope's easier to get when you're a kid than, than booze. But it wasn't long before the Boone's Farm apple wine and 99-cent gallons of gallo were, were part of the, the story. And I had a social conscience, and I was out there marching but I stayed out on the marches long after, you know, the placards had been pulled down long after the, uh, the uh, you know, people had gone home. I'm hanging out with that group that smokes joints and drinks, drinks booze. So at first it's like fun and it's part, to, part a way to connect. Uh, then, you know, in my, in my early 20s, it, it had become, rather than being a bolt-on, an add-on to my life, it became the pivotal point. Like, can I drink and use? Can I live here? Is it close enough to? Am I with people who can? Do they use as much as I do? So at one point it shifted. Rather than being something that I added to my life, life was something I added to my drinking and using. That is, I, this is really profound. I, I'm glad you said this, Kiski, because... Mm-hmm. Um, People ask me, so I'm an alcohol and drug counselor and work with lots of people with alcohol and drug issues, but I mean, that's really the point. Like I'll get phone calls from my private practice and stuff and people are really curious about like, do I have a problem? Do I not? Mm -hmm. Um, And they kind of play these games with themselves trying to figure it out. And I never (laughs) once met somebody who's been hooked who has not done due diligence by testing themselves in a variety of ways, whether they can stop or start. But I, I like the point you're making is that for you looking back at it, it shifted from as a part of your life to kind of like more of like the mainstay. Yes. Yep. Can, you know, can I get a job that will support my, and also not just support my habits, but also, um, uh, that I can, uh, that will still employ me <laughs> in spite of coming in, at, uh, you know, hungover or impaired or long lunches or leaving early. Am I, am I still going to be able to be there? So obviously you can't have a job of a certain level that will still allow you to behave in uh, unreliable ways. And are you at this time aware, or at least somewhat aware that you might have an alcohol or drug problem? I, you know, yes, uh, I am. I used to sing, sing the song one day at a time, sweet Jesus in the shower, meaning one time, one more day, one day at a time, can I still get away with it? Ah, okay. So is there something, cause I, I, I I'm like super curious about this, sure. just doing all these interviews I've done is, yeah. is deep down at that moment or during that time period, did you get a sense that, yeah, I think I probably do have a problem or oh. did you pull the, were you able to pull the wool so far over your eyes where you get this like little idea that you do, but then you just kind of pull it over again. 
Okay, uh, good question. Yes, yeah, so I'd say, so I myself continue to do, you know, what we call geographic. So I had moved, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I moved to Colorado and lived, you know, with five people out in a shack somewhere, you know, un- grossly underemployed and just, you know, food, uh, hand-to-mouth kind of existence. When things went too far, meaning I felt too out of control and that I wasn't going to be able to maintain some semblance of routine in my life, I would go back to school. So going to school would always be what I call putting my foot on the ground to prevent the whirlies. So, you know, if you go to bed when you're too drunk and you're just lying there and you have to throw one leg out of the bed and put it on the ground, put your foot on the ground to prevent yourself from like throwing up in your pillow again, that that school was like that. It would kind of be a steadying element. So I went back to school when I was pregnant with my son. So I've got a baby girl, 18 months, I'm pregnant. Um, uh, Dad is out of the picture, has been for a while. and, and I go back to school and, and I know, I know that things are coming apart and I'm, I'm really to the bone exhausted. And, um, uh, you know, I'm pregnant. So this time I know I, I can't drink, but I'm still using like oh, idiot. But, and, you know, you, you only absorb the amount of information that you are psychologically able to, to tolerate. So I knew it was bad to drink when you're pregnant but I didn't generalize, which of, I mean, any person with two cells could generalize that, but I chose not to because I was in denial. Like you said, pulling the wool so far over your eyes. But I knew, I knew my life was really falling apart and there came, there were a couple of really bad incidences and you would have thought that in terms of bottoms that they would be bottoms. Um, but I, at that point, it was like, of course I'm an alcoholic. That's why I drink the way I do. Of course I'm an addict. That's why I use the way I do. And there wasn't an idea uh, yet embraced that quitting should be part of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I, See, I, I try to like spell this out a little bit because I think like like if there's listeners out there, they'll probably relate to this. It's sort of like how the wool slowly kind of comes up. It does. Like the, so it everybody does. always thinks like the wool's over your eyes or it's not. And I love what you're talking about, Kitsky, because like you're talking about, well, no, the wool actually gradually goes up at certain points, but then it kind of pulls down. It does. And sometimes it's thicker than others. You know, the, the weave is thicker than others. So yeah, it's, uh, so I admitted I had a problem, but that excused my behavior. No, it didn't excuse it. It just justified, it rationalized my behavior. Uh, when I went back to California, I tried to go on, oh, I didn't try. I did go on antabuse, but because I couldn't stop drinking, but I knew I had to. Unfortunately, it doesn't have a, a salubrious effect on your drug usage. So you just flip-flopped, I bet. Yes. It's classic. It's classic. That is so classic. For all you people out there, don't be ashamed about it. It's the classic move. It's the classic move. It really is. I mean, now now that I know, I know what the, 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 the recovery journey is about, that all of these were my fits and starts. If I had had, uh, if it had been like, I'm, I'm 33 years clean and sober now. 
Hey, congratulations, so, by the way. Thank, thank you. Living proof it can be done. It can be done, and life is effing enjoyable. You can swear on the podcast. It's totally okay. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I actually, I actually have to curb my F-bombs sometimes because I'm like, oh, I'm a professional. I shouldn't be swearing. But I'm like, yeah. the natural flow of conversation, sometimes you just do. It's do part it. of complete yes. embodiment. It's there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> today's a beautiful day, or you could say today's a fucking beautiful day. Okay. Yeah, because it is, it's that profound. Yeah. Um, so, uh, ooh, the merry ground moved, and my horse that was on moved. Um, <laughs> I know that because of the effing thing, but yes, that it is. Um, it's iterative. You would I admit I knew that I was I was an addict and an alcoholic. I knew that something had to change. But I, I wasn't, oh, 33 years ago, if I'd had you know, people looking out for me, like sometimes you have families that look out for you. Because my parents, as I said, my mom is an alcoholic, and so uh, she was really in denial. My dad didn't have both oars in the water. My sister and brother had other stories that I won't go into. That's, that's their thing. Um, but I didn't have anyone really looking out for me. Otherwise, maybe, maybe I would have made it into treatment centers two or three times before I finally so my story isn't going in and out of treatment centers. My story isn't going in and out of the rooms. But I certainly struggled with the idea that there was something not right. But I also thought that maybe I was just broken. Mm. It, it wasn't just that I was an addict or an alcoholic, that maybe I was just broken. And this was, the, this was the only glue that would keep me putting one foot in front of the other, taking care of these two small kids. So often in life, we have this intuitive feeling or thought that tells us things just aren't right with ourselves, others or situations. But we often ignore the signal, opting to believe the opinion of others rather than really trusting our own intuition. We might even get fired up about denying our own dysfunctional behaviors to others in service to protecting our illusion that we don't have a problem and that we have it all together. But the reality in addiction is this. It works hard, hard over time to keep the wool pulled down over our eyes. It will wait you out. Or even if you do figure it out, it will hide out for years waiting for just that perfect opportunity to spring that relapse thought that actually works. You see, denial of addiction fights, and it fights a hard and long fight. The struggle might start with addiction and trying to stay sober, but deep down it might lead us to a place we particularly don't like to visit. A place of self-hate, not being adequate enough for ourselves or for the people around us. You see, why would we want to face this when we are addicted? I mean, the addiction is in service to protecting us from those feelings of self-hate and keep us from embracing self-love. But what if self-love deep down and feeling our own feelings and moving toward the best version of ourselves could happen? Might it bring us closer to our bodies and who we truly are? And what if in recovery we allowed ourselves to jump back into our body to see what's there? What has always been there? It's not self-hate, but self-love. And then how could we cultivate that more and more in our lives? So you identified, like, I think a really core belief that probably people struggling, a lot of people struggling with addiction have. I mean, 
you know, let alone the shame connected with it, the shame connected with maybe bad parts of our lives, bad things that have happened, but then mm-hmm. down deep feeling yeah. like I'm a broken person. Yeah. And then how I think some people describe it, like how isolating that is to be alone with that feeling and how unbearable that can be. It is because they, um, the ability to express it, of course, is broken also. Mm. So can you say more about that? Sure. Um, you know, if you ask me at any point, you know, be- between, say, the 20s when I, was, when I was first admitted that I was drinking because I was an alcoholic and using because I'm an addict, to, you know, probably another 10 years. No, probably another it doesn't matter, period of time, um, that during all that time when I was kind of admitting that I, that I had a problem, if you'd asked me at any point how I'm doing, I would tell you what was going on or I would tell you what I thought. But I would never be able to tell you how I felt. The ability to say how I felt didn't come until about three years sober. Mm. So it took so a while. Say, I mean, yeah, you're- so- you're covering such such wonderful ground, Kitsky, because so I've like been involved in residential treatment, outpatient, intensive outpatient, all that good stuff. But um, family members really struggle with the fact that, you know, like you're saying, if somebody would reach out to me, I probably might have gone the residential treatment, but there's uh, probably a good chance I wouldn't have gotten it. Right. <laughs> Cycle back through and how frustrating that is for family members to go through that. But to understand that this is a process for somebody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've never met somebody struggling with addiction that got it like that. Yeah. It's just, I, unless you have, I, yeah. I haven't never yeah. met somebody that gets it like that. It's actually yeah. a process. And I think some of the breakdown with educating families is understanding that this is a process. Because a lot of times family members will be like, oh, they're in residential treatment, so they're cured. Now mm-hmm. I can breathe a sigh of relief. They're going to come out and, you know, you know, the gates of heaven are going to open up and they're just going to be good the rest of the way. When in fact, really what you're talking about, which is so similar, mm-hmm. is that it's a process that unfolds for each individual. Yeah. It can be painful yeah. as hell. Mm-hmm. And, and your timeline is different. So, well, I was... You know, always drama. My gosh, the drama that's in even early in recovery, you know, just everything. Uh, it's um, it's like a pulled tooth where just the the nerves are raw and everything that comes across the mouth hurts. Right. So that's kind of what life is like. You've you've taken out the drugs, you've taken out the alcohol. So now all the nerve endings are raw and everything has an equal weight of importance. So things that are good are really, really good. And things that are bad are really, really bad. There's no uh, gray, as we say, you know, that's it's right, wrong. It's good, bad. So it isn't as if we aren't emotional. But the emotions aren't discernible. And aren't, um, uh, what I want to say, accessible. It's almost like they happen to us, or at least that's the way I felt. All of my emotions happened to me in, in, early, in early recovery, which is like all these things were happening. And I didn't know, like we say one day at a time, and I'm just like going, oh, my God, whatever I'm feeling, like a colicky baby, it's going to be forever. It's my total existence, and it's going to last forever. 
Yeah, you're like, screw you, it's not a day at a time. This is like a yeah. terrible situation for me. Yes. You know, this yes. makes me think of, you know, I got done supervising a residential treatment center fairly recently, but um, what I noticed about the clients, and this kind of, I think, might pertain to what you're talking about, is by the end of the day, they would do a bunch of treatment programs throughout the day. But what mm-hmm. I noticed is, especially ones that just got on the unit for the first week, they would just want to sit down and just stare at a TV and not do anything. Yeah. Just like like exhausted. And they would report just mm-hmm. sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it probably, what I'm learning and chiming in with you is, it's probably that mat, all those emotions coming in. And now there's the shutoff valve was really the booze and the drugs. Mm-hmm. And now, hey, we took away the booze and the drugs. Hey, isn't this a great life for you? And what yeah. I was discovering with the people I was working with, they're like, Ted, this is a terrible life. My anxiety is going through the roof. I'm depressed. And now I don't even have the shutoff valve. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you relate to any of that, but uh, absolutely. Well, and, and so then this is where I want to put my plug for yoga in. Yes. Uh, I, I teach yoga in treatment centers and some people think of yoga as an exercise, but really yoga is a healing system. So teaching people how to breathe, how to get grounded in their postures moving the body to let the energy move through because our emotions are recorded in our cells, which is here in our physical body. So our emotions are held in our physical body. As my teacher says, issues live in our tissues. I love that. I love that. Peter Levine and uh, Emerson uh, talk about the the traumata of daily living being written in our bodies. And so the yoga can, you don't need to know the story. You just move so that the energy moves through it. And then you get Shavasana, which is the tranquility pose, that rest pose at the end, where you really get to just be. I love it. And and it is a real, I, I, I think that there's huge power in that practice and uh, it's not something you can force on anyone. So I go to treatment centers where it's an offering. It's not required. I've been to treatment centers where it's required. And then it's not a, 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 a yummy addition because you're walking in with resentment and resistance and uh, possibly even um, a, uh, maybe a, a spiritual misunderstanding about what yoga is offering. Oh, I, or you walk in like saying, oh, my God, you know, I, I ache, I, I, I can't touch my toes, I can't do this, I can't do that. And it's like saying I'm too dirty to take a bath. Well said, well said. You know, I, th- I, I guess as a shout out to the treatment centers out there, the more I think about it is sometimes because I help treatment centers with development of their programs. And I've run into treatment centers that, that are, are, are super stoked about this idea of offering, you know, yoga, mindfulness mm-hmm. in their programs, but they sort of like just put it on the schedule. And I think what you're drawing out is this idea of like, well, it's not really an invitation. It's really an order if you do it that way. And you yeah. want people to have the option, understand right. it, become more aware, try it out and try kind of see what you think. 
I used to be a CPA and an auditor, and we, we always evaluate the tone at the top. So if the tone at the top is, this is just a frivolous thing, and you might as well play dominoes or smoke vape in the backyard, um, then it's not going to be held uh, as important. But as soon as I get one ambassador, someone who's tried it, and all of a sudden, four and five other people come in, and I've offered, and I and I've not yet. After eight years, I've yet to be taken up on it. I said, I'll bring, I'll be glad for free to come and give you a twenty-minute yoga practice that uh, to your staff at a staff meeting, so that you know what it is I'm doing, because I bring recovery language into the practice. So if yoga has been around for thousands of years, and has been practiced by millions throughout the world, how could it be helpful to someone in recovery? Could it possibly be a potential link back to our bodies? I mean, like not necessarily talking about it, but experience our bodies for the first time in a long time. Our bodies with tight muscles, lack of mobility, and just basic inabilities to stretch in a certain kind of way. What if our body actually could lead us back to our true feelings and thoughts? Could our recovery story be a story that unfolds patiently and lovingly over time? That we actually appreciate ourselves and our journey with all of its relationships, its mishaps, and its losses. That we begin to experience our soft hearts and the deep happiness that has always been there. Because most people have their perceptions of like what yoga is. Like my wife's actually a yoga teacher, so oh, I've been so you know I've been indoctrinated bit. into that world. So like even you talking about you know the shavasana, mm-hmm. um, Ted would say the reason why I do the yoga is to get to the shavasana. Absolutely, <laughs> and I never yeah. want to be cheated on my shavasana. Some teachers they do too much in the beginning, and then I only get five minutes. I like the full ten or fifteen minutes. Ten minutes of shavasana, absolutely. Yeah, and that's one thing I have to say about treatment centers is you're lucky if you get 55 minutes for the whole hour, and they usually schedule it right after lunch. So you have everybody who's full of filled with beanie weenies or whatever you know the two dollar per person menu will allow, and then you're trying to do some yoga. That's exactly then- how the treatment center did it. It was scheduled at like one o'clock. Yes. After lunch. It doesn't make any sense. I know. I know. So um, I actually, I have a, a teacher training program called SOAR, Success Over Addiction and Relapse, where I teach people to bring yoga into treatment centers. And because we don't have a lot of time, we can't, you know, do a little check-in or anything like that. I, I leave that to, to the meetings that they're involved with. But to integrate recovery language into the yoga process to make the yoga somatic, meaning I ask you a hundred times, how are you feeling? Where do you feel this? Where are you experiencing this in your body? Are you breathing? Where are you breathing? You're breathing up here. You're breathing down here. When you move your body, what all other parts of your body do you feel? Like bringing your because we're, we're disembodied. We've cut off our, you know, when I was drinking and using, if I felt my body, it meant I wasn't using enough. You know, it means I need another hit of something because I'm aware of my body. Mm-hmm. So how do you move back into your body with kindness? Because we remember what we used to be like 
you know, way back when, when we were athletic, when we could still do stuff. And now we've got maybe some broken bones, certainly some physical anguish, possibly some chronic pain. And so how do I make friends with my body? So somatically based, also trauma sensitive. So don't be doing poses where, you know, you're like a dead bug or happy baby, like a lovely pose. But I'll tell you, if you have men and women in the same room together, you don't want to lie on your back with your feet in the air, pulling your knees towards your armpits. That's just not polite. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a, it's going to be triggering. And as you know, in early recovery, you tend to be uh, hyper, hypersexual. So anything that can, you know, cross the line into sexuality, you know, so dress modestly as a yoga teacher. Um, put the women in the back and the men in the front. So when you're a downward facing dog, you don't feel so vulnerable. Do you think that they should actually in treatment programs just have women's yoga and men's yoga? Because that was what I was pushing for in this program was why don't we just have the men separate from the women just to keep it clean. And that part about in residential treatment, after they get clean, it's all about, it seems oftentimes about hooking up. That's like the next focus. The the next thing is to go into behavioral addiction. Yeah. You know, so, but, but I'll say yes and no, because uh, we are then in binary sexual identification and it's not binary. We have to admit it. It's not binary. Yes. Yes. What you're going to do. Yes. Yes. I I like that. Yeah. So kind of working with it. Yes. Rather than like. And, and, um, so using, using great, good language, you know, don't tell people to pull up from their perineum, you know, you don't want everybody thinking about the perineum, you know, that's just not, not, it's, it's not, uh, useful at that time. Feel the soles of your feet on the floor. If you can feel that you're in a pose, let the poses be modest. Let them be slow. Let them be repeated so that you become, uh, you walk away from the class with a feeling of mastery rather than a feeling that you've had your ass whipped or, you know, that you know, you've had this real sweaty experience of jumping around, you know, to, to really let it be more, as we say in yoga, sattvic more harmonious and um, integrative. So really kind of helping people get, so it'd be different than like a power yoga or something else, but it's really about helping people get back into their bodies in a gentle, compassionate, kind way. Yeah. And you don't have to do a bunch of a zillion and one poses. It's mastering the simple poses um, mm-hmm. But really getting more and more into your body, which like what I've discovered in the recovery world is the more people get into their bodies and understand mm-hmm. their emotions. It seems like even people in recovery, they live more vivacious recoveries. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes familiar territory for them. And it's a lot of people will say like in recovery is like, um, I just want to be like that person now. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't realize the trials and tribulations and the practice that it takes to embody and that it's an ongoing process, at least in my perspective. Yes. Like there isn't like an end point. And so often mm-hmm. we kind of get in this thing of like, give me a drink. Let me do a drug. Just uh, that solves the issue. I'm yeah. there. So now I'm in recovery. I'm there. I'm done. I'm done with recovery. I've, I've mastered mm-hmm. it. 
and sort yeah. of like mastering your emotions too. Mm-hmm. Because life keeps changing. Nothing is static. Therefore, you know, in early recovery, uh, my my skill set needed to include uh, being a mom to two elementary school kids, right? And to then get a job where I could support them and support their after school care and, uh, and have time for my recovery and meeting with a sponsor and eventually having sponsees. Whole new skill set. Then as they grew, I had to adapt to their independence and then maybe a more adult living situation, moving out the garage into an apartment and, and so on to to so everything keeps changing and my relationship with life keeps changing so i have to hold my recovery loosely to allow it also to continue to change to my um, adulting so what if we hit a rut in our recovery what if the high point of being sober in the beginning suddenly lost its flame and our mind started to wander we started going through the motions of our lives I mean, yoga teachers sometimes tell stories of poses and routines getting stagnant and they need to change things up a bit just to keep the blood pumping in their yoga heart. Better yet, what if we hit a recovery rut and it started taking over? What rationalizations would we come up with? How could we trick ourselves back to the bottle? Or maybe not even that. Just switch our addiction to, let's say, moving from an alcoholic to a workaholic. I mean, a lot of people don't like to talk about the potential for relapse with people who have been sober 10 plus years. That addiction can tip the balance over recovery at any time and that we can have multiple rock bottoms again and again. So how would we know if we were slipping off the edge and what could we do about it? Ah, I know we're going to kind of go off on a tangent here, but I almost think of like, and I've heard people talk about this that have been in recovery for a while, that the recovery gets in a rut. Mm Mm-hmm. It's yes. too like it's the same old, same old, yep. and they begin to actually, what, what I've learned, and I don't know if this is in your experience and just working with people and yourself, but it's almost like they, even though they're in recovery, they're actually beginning to disconnect from those inner emotions when they're in the group. Well, I, I couldn't have paid you better. Really? And this is unrehearsed, by the way. <laughs> When I was about 17 years sober, I had really plateaued. And actually, I had jumped over to another addiction. And we laugh about it. We call it, you know, workaholism. But when your identity shifts from being you, integrated in yourself, to being who you are through another person's eyes, whether it's a a spouse or a lover, uh, your children, your good friend, whatever, or your employers or your, the corporation that you work for. Um, you know, I was just being according to what I thought they wanted me to be. And even though I went to meetings, uh, even though I still had a sponsor, I still had a few sponsees, I was working all the time. And by all the time, I mean, sometimes every day in the week for weeks, most often six days a week, most often no fewer than 10 hours a day. And I was becoming depleted, as we say in yoga prana, depleted. Um, And I, I couldn't stop. I didn't have any breaks. I didn't have any way to disconnect from work. 
or no intellectually known way. And that's when I discovered yoga. I made a deal with myself that if there was, if the little oval light that said yoga was lit in the, in the uh, health food store that I passed on my way home. <laughs> I love it. Then you would and stop. I'd take, then I'd stop and take a class. So, listeners, this is like a great strategy. <laughs> Drive by a yoga studio that's open, go in. Have the light determined. I love it. Well, I mean, you're really talking about such good stuff that I don't think is talked about enough. Is From the outside, people would have seen you. Oh, she's got a job. She's making money. She's going to meetings. She's mm-hmm. a sponsor, sponsee, whatever. You know, you're doing it. She's been 17 years sober. She's going to sail off into the sunset. That's right. And here you find you're actually being depleted, which I think I've seen some of this just in my own personal experiences, people hooking into that other behavioral addiction, which work is like the best one. Oh, yeah. Because you get kickbacks, affirmations, money. People are like, oh, that's a hard, you're a hard worker. That's right. And who could fault you? Who could say, you know, you don't show, you can't go to this thing or, you know, you're not spending time with your husband. You're not, you know, calling your kids. You're just, well, God, she's at work. She's busy. She's at work. Like, oh, that, that excuses a multitude of sins, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so what I'm curious so, about, oh yeah, go. Well, I'm just going to say that what the yoga class did is it you, you use the word embody, which I use a lot myself? Is is it allowed me to touch feelings in me that my intellect had explained, but not processed. So I was able. I'm, I'm pretty verbal. So I've been in therapy for 20 years. You know, I was able to talk just about anything, but it it hadn't. Uh, the ball of yarn hadn't unknotted inside me. I could I could identify it. I could tell you all about it, but it hadn't unknotted. And so in the yoga class, uh, which was very hatha, very slow, um, very, very patient, I, I cried for about the first six months that I practiced. Just unknown, you know, downward facing dogs, tears, you know, just hear tears, just tears. And um, I am not a flexible person, and I certainly wasn't a very strong person when I started. So, and she told me, it doesn't matter. You just keep practicing because it's, it's, it's the intention and how you are treating yourself with that intention of kindness and affection and acceptance that matters. It's not whether your palm is on the ground or whether your triangle pose looks like, you know, a, a, a picture in a magazine. That's not the point. The point is what's going on inside. So you really experience the emotional power of yoga. Mm-hmm. And those tears, I, and help me out if I'm off on this, but mm-hmm. those tears had to come out. Oh, they did. I just had no other vehicle. Because I was the strong, competent, able-bodied, always there. I'm, you know, I'm the, the problem solver. I'm the one who can, who can dot, dot, dot. And um, there wasn't a place where I could go where I could just be. I didn't know who I was if I was just being. Yeah. That's- yeah, it kind of brings me back to the story. So I had a best friend a few years back that died in the tragic mountain accident. He was like mm-hmm. my best buddy. 
uh, Jim McGrogan, and it was the hardest thing to get through, man. That this was like grief because he was missing for a couple weeks, and and I was just all balled up inside. I could just feel it. And then what would happen? You know, they eventually found him. We went to the funeral, but that that grief probably lasted a few years. But what happened was it wasn't through yoga, but it was like through I'd hear a song that reminded me of him. Mm-hmm. And I would just start bawling. Yeah. You know, I'd be mm-hmm. driving along. And, of course, I'm like, I flipped the sunglasses on. Yeah. I, yeah. First thing, <laughs> save face. Put the sunglasses I'm on the freeway. And I'm, like, worried about a guy kind of. But th- this is, like, how closed up I am. But, like, a car would be going by at like 60 miles an hour, like they're not, I have sunglasses on. How are they going to see the tears under the sunglasses? But I was thinking of that. And it just sort of like what I've discovered was it had a beginning, middle, and end. The tears would just run their course. They do. They do. And by following the course and being more comfortable with the course, I felt like things really began to unwind in, in a positive way where I feel like his memory is now is very strong and his spirit's very strong inside me. Mm-hmm. But that had to happen, I think. It does. It absolutely like, does. It's not an intellectual. And I know that people are afraid that if they start crying, they'll never stop. And then I say, well, how many people do you know who are still crying? Take that one in, listeners. It is. It's a hard journey, but yeah, um, it's okay. You it, you will eventually be done. Uh, the nervous system knows no time. Meaning that when a memory is triggered, it's now. And the, the most honorable thing we can do for ourselves is to accept it and not perpetuate the abuse that may have been perpetuated upon us when we were kids. Like, go ahead and cry. I'll give you something to cry about. Or no one likes someone who wears their heart on their sleeve. Or, you know, no one wants, you know, fill in the blank about expressing emotions. Don't do that to yourself. Don't perpetuate those those lies. Let yourself feel. It's going to be okay. And you can begin feeling or trying to be kind to yourself now. Now. Start someplace. Don't exactly. start tomorrow. Start someplace. Start today. Start today. Start right now. Start with whatever is going on for you in this exact moment. And do one I, when when we first made connection, I said I was excited and and a little anxious. I had to say that because that's how I felt in that moment, and it dissipated right away. I felt comfortable right away. But the truth was at that exact moment, that's how I felt. But things are always changing. Yes. Now, in yoga poses, I say, okay, how does it feel now? Well, pretty good. Okay, I'll check back with you in a minute. And if, I don't know if you've ever held your arms out like this for a minute. It's a really long time. Things change. And then when you come out of the pose, it dissipates. Things change. So movement really mimics yeah. emotions and sort of like your mm-hmm. inner landscape in so many ways. Absolutely. And it gives you a... a uh, concrete or sensory, not concrete, but a sensory way of experiencing that truth. Hmm. When I'm teaching balances, and, and balance is really tough. Uh, so when I'm teaching a balance pose, I ask people, you know, take a 
find something that doesn't move and gaze at it. Okay. And then now pick your right foot up and put the sole of your right foot on your calf or on your, on your upper leg, uh, whatever feels good. Pause and breathe. And then if you want to grow your branches, grow your branches and come into tree pose. Look at that point. That point will help you keep keep steady in your balance pose. And, and I liken that then to recovery. If you keep your eye on your recovery, you'll keep your balance in your daily life a little bit more easily. Mm, I love that. So whether you're balancing physically or trying to balance your day, keep, a, keep your eye on a point that doesn't move. And you'll be able to uh, keep your balance much more easily. Yeah. Make, make a choice between one thing or another. Does it support my recovery or does it not support my recovery? Hmm. Easy, easy. Yes, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and then when you talk, I actually kind of get in a little bit of, I call it my like meditative zone. There's only uh-huh. certain people I that happens, but you're like one of them. When you, when you start talking about the yoga, I my body just starts settling down. <laughs> so if I fade <laughs> out in the podcast, listeners, you'll know why. <laughs> Dropping in. Yeah. Well, um, let's see. Everybody seems to like to hear the deepest, you know, the darkest moment, the rock bottom. Um, I'm kind of a fan and not a fan of it. In, in a lot yeah. of ways. I mean, it just kind of depends on the individual person. But I really like, like not to sensationalize the rock bottom, but to really like use it as a place of a new beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't so know if that's even relevant. If you want to talk maybe about yeah. one of your critical spots where you felt like enough had happened and then you decided to make a different choice. I mean, obviously the yoga light going on at the studio yeah, um, it allowed the- me not to relapse because I was thinking like there's I know of no other way to put in the break. I know of no other way to stop this obsession, mania, whatever it was. I didn't know how to stop it except to use. So really finding yoga helped prevent relapse for me. That was that was a pivotal point for me. The reason that I or the moment when you know people say never forget your last drink. And my last drink was completely boring. It was just another day of another, you know, drinking too much at someone else's house and not knowing how I got home and um, waking up with the, with the, the cotton mouth and the, the greasy sweat, you know, in dirty sheets again. Uh, but uh, this time... I just thought, I can't keep doing this. Um, I was sitting on my my bed and, you know, the dirty curtains over the dirty windows and uh, the sunlight coming through and lighting up the dust motes as they kind of like filter through the air. You know, there's ashes and bottles and dirty laundry and papers and all kinds of crap all over the room and I'm, I'm, I'm just exhausted. It just like takes everything I can pull together to get up every morning and, and, and get, get clothes on the kids and get them a, a breakfast or push a bagel in their hand and get them in the car and drop them off at preschool. It, it, I just, it was so exhausting. 
and and I was sitting there, and I was like, "What's holding? What's 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 hold? Why do I keep doing it? Why do I keep trying to make a life when I am so obviously um, drawn to drawn?" You know, just wearing myself out. I mean, literally, my cutoff for drinking and using was 5 a.m., and I had to be at work at 8.30. So I had, like, a very short window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brushing my teeth and getting my shit together. <laughs> so, of course, I was a little exhausted. Um, so, but that's kind of like the, my, my, and I was sitting there and looking at that, that what is holding me to the pretense of being a mom, of being a person who goes to work, a person who can put gas in the car, who can drive down a street and, and know when to stop and, and know when to turn. How can I, what's holding me here? And I, I kind of felt like whatever was the real me was attached by, by such a, a, a filament, just such a fine gossamer thread that if I let go, it would break and, and there would be no me left and I would just be a machine of using. And I, and I know I could do that. I could walk out of that house and up the block to the junkie's house, which was what, worse than mine. I don't know. You know, the place where there's just mattresses on the floor and you never know what's a lump of clothes and what's a human being. And it's always dark and you can always get what you need and you can stay there as long as you want. And it smells like puke and spilled beer and rotten food. And I could just go up there and blend in and someone would eventually take my kids to their dad and, and all of the things would be gone. And, and I, and I knew that at that moment I had to make that choice. Do I walk out the door and go up to the junkie's house or do I pick up the phone and make a call? And uh, I, through the rumor mill, one of my using buddies, uh, my girlfriend, had uh, at that point um, maybe six months of clean sober time. And uh, so I, I called her. And, uh, and she was going to pick me up that night. It was a Wednesday. It was the 5th of July. It was 1983. I didn't get clean. I started using again later. And that's another end bottom story. But I stayed clean and sober for a little over three months at that clean and sober. I never had another drink. But uh, Marie came and took me to the gay atheist agnostic meeting, meeting on Geary Street because, damn it, I wasn't going to let anybody know who I was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do you know if I'm gay? Or do you not? You know, my atheist, my agnostic. <laughs> like, everybody would care. <laughs> right? So that's the meeting I went to. And that was my first meeting, and I still have my 24-hour chip. Oh, nice. So you still yeah. have it to this day? Yes. Yes, I do. I say it's really like when they used to be poker chips. Ah, uh, it's a poker chip. Yeah, that's what somebody had said when they used to be poker. I've heard that before when they used to be poker chips. That's yeah. So, do people just get it right the first time out of the gate in recovery? What would you do, and what can you expect in recovery? Perfection, making mistakes, trusting your intuition, faking it until you make it. Is shame and guilt to be avoided or embraced? And if so, how would I tolerate these feelings? And if you relapse and come back into sobriety, does it just count as a failure? Or maybe it indicates a healthy shift in your values. Your values about yourself and who you want to be. 
that maybe you can jump back on the horse and give it even a better run. What would you say to somebody newly, a listener who picks up the podcast, they're in early recovery or thinking about it? Mm-hmm. Do you have any steps or words of wisdom that you'd want to share with them? It sounds really corny. Say it. Keep, now you have to say it. Yeah, keep coming back. And I don't mean just keep coming back to the rooms, but keep coming back to your intuition, to that voice inside of you that says, this, is, this isn't sitting well with me. This isn't what I want to do. This isn't the me I want to be. Keep coming back to that discomfort. Because my theory is it's when our discomfort with how we're behaving and our values become so at odds with one another, when that friction becomes so great, then you're able to take certain steps. Then you're able to make that decision. Because there's enough heat. There's enough fire under your ass to make a decision. So the idea of like making a decision, if we were to like dissect this a little bit, which is kind of interesting to me. I love dissecting like these quandaries. But like... Why somebody doesn't get help, their parents bring them in, but they don't, they drop out of treatment. Yeah. Versus, I like this other approach, or this is another approach, but this approach of like, pay attention to your intuition and the discomfort that you feel internally, that you know that that's actually not you. Yeah. And you might go out and use again, but come, keep coming back to it because eventually that will well up enough that there's a good chance that you'll probably take some action down the road. That's right. If you pay attention to that discomfort, I, I I really think that, oh, you know, as I said, for me, it took, what, eight years uh, from, you know, drinking because I was an alcoholic to stopping drinking because I was an alcoholic. You know, it took a long time, but I, I, I really knew I was always searching, always searching for, for what is, what what are we? You know, what's our purpose here? And um, and I and I knew, knew, knew deep down that I, I didn't want to behave the way that I was behaving, but I didn't know another way. And and just like when I got to that point with my workaholism, I didn't know how to put the brakes on. You know, I didn't know how. And and it becomes harder and harder to quit. It really does. Um, but you can't quit for good and all until or you know, as good and all as we get until that friction becomes great enough inside yourself, not between you and a relationship. Mm, it's it's internal. It's within yourself. Yes. That the tide man, turns. No one is going to say to you something that is going to give you that V8 moment. Oh, I could have had sobriety, you know? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, my relationships are going to go to shit. Oh, I could get liver, you know, liver disease. Oh, you know, I could become, um, uh, you know, have begin to have lung disease from this. No, that's not it. You know, yeah. I even think about you. Yeah, continue. It's that friction with within you and your ethics. At some point, you could be be in trouble. Yeah, and and you're a good person down deep. That oh, it's, it's really welcoming that goodness, that kindness, that you can be who you want to be. Yeah. 
and yeah. it can start, it, it'll be a process, but you can start somewhere. You don't have to wait till tomorrow or a week or a month. You can start today by just being kind to yourself. Yes. And that is the hardest thing we do. And I think that that comes along, um, you know, in that, that first three years of recovery, that's such an important mark. I mean, in my experience with my, with my sponsees, there's something magic that happens in the three years and then something that happens between three and five years that, that, that those are kind of two different magic points. Um, but at about three years, you do begin to have the capacity to have genuine full on self compassion and some ideas that at core you are whole and good, not that at core you are broken. Mm. It takes a while to really begin to believe that you're not broken. So my sponsees, when they say, but I still feel such shame and such guilt, and I say, great, because that is affirming that you have better values. If you didn't feel, if you didn't have better values, you wouldn't have those moments of shame or guilt. That's, that's a great way to look at it, that yes. that actually, because you have that, that means your values have shifted because before yes. it wasn't enough to yeah. do anything about it or to not even have that feeling, but now it is. Yeah. That's a great perspective. So are we enough for not only others, but for ourselves? Maybe this is the most important question. Can we be enough for ourselves? Like, be happy day to day with who we are and where our journey has taken us. Where our relationships are at. Sure, we can always strive to improve ourselves, but can we also be in the moment and feel our way through the moment in our own bodies? Can we trust our intuition again and allow ourselves the love for ourselves we so deserve? Owning our successes as well as our failures and imperfections. Tell me one of your brightest recovery moments over the past year. Hmm. Or just in general. In general, well, no, this has been a, um, you know, I talk about self-compassion and I talk about self-acceptance. And, um, you know, we study most what we need to learn. I'm, I'm drawn to uh, to, uh, to podcasts and TED talks about self-compassion because it's one of those things that that slips away when I become that outer shell of competence, and I and I accept in me that's going to be my weak point, meaning that when I become um, overwhelmed, I'm going to put on my my little garb of competence. I'm going to become my little automaton of, of get things done. Um, and what happens is that I, I grow out of touch with what I really need. And sometimes I need affection and sometimes I need someone just to sit next to me while I talk and just let me talk it out without offering solution. Because I do suffer from not enoughism. That is, I, I, I fall back into that sense of I am not enough. And, and that's kind of a scary place for me to be uh, because then I look for otheration, meaning people, places, and things to fill me so I don't feel not enough. Mm. So I go into well, not hyperactivity, but I begin into this filling process rather than 
sitting with the discomfort. Why am I sabotaging my really beautiful life with putting on a new layer of shoulds? You know, as we say in the program, don't should all over your plat self. Well, I do that. Why do I put on a new layer of shoulds to prevent myself from enjoying my beautiful life, you know, like the talking heads. This is not my beautiful pencil. <laughs> this, is, this is my beautiful life. And it's because underneath that, that old sense of brokenness is coming up, that sense of non-deserving. Which I would like to say, even related to people not in recovery, just the human condition, that yes. this not being mm-hmm. enough transcends addiction recovery and extends to so many. I mean, just you talking about like the shoulds. I mean, I'm totally guilty of that. I mean, and like when we feel, when we don't want to be vulnerable, we might adopt this sort of like mask of competence. Yeah. Or this mass of 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 mask of mass doing. Like, oh, look at all the stuff I can do. Yes. Um, and then sometimes we treat people in a really crappy way because we're so defending that idea yeah. that I'm competent because you only you don't that's the only thing you want to hear because that's going to take that feeling of discomfort away. The minute mm-hmm. somebody says you're not, it brings you back to the discomfort. Yeah. But, but then we might point the finger at that person and say, "Well, no, we want to prove them wrong because then we're still <laughs> competent, and then we never deal with that stuff that you're talking about." That's right. So in this last year, it's been exactly that. It's been like making that time. You know, just meaning that, meaning all of those 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 uh, steps that you were describing, that the competency shroud, and then not being able to take in any new information, whether it's criticism or adjustment or or any anything that makes us you know, quiver in in our whatever tentative balance that we have. That um, for me to shorten the distance between the time distance between feeling awkward in my awkwardness and adopting the shell of competence. So come out of my shell, come back to that, that experience of discomfort of my awkwardness and find out what I really need. What do I really need? Am I not getting enough sleep? Am I eating the wrong foods again? Um, am I not taking care of myself enough? By me, by that, I mean, have I gone? Have I gone to a yoga class recently that someone else was teaching? Ah, that's good. I like that. I love that. Have I put myself in someone else's hands for a moment, for ninety minutes, where I let someone else guide me, or have I decided that I'm the master of all ships? Yeah, that's dangerous. The reason I'm laughing is because I so relate to it. <laughs> it's, there's a comfort to being the master of all ships. Yeah. Although we don't want to admit it, there is a comfort to it because it brings that, that elation, that confidence, but it, it serves as such a mask at times. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's a cutoff point. And then we spend all our time defending it and doing it proving it over and over to ourselves that yes, in fact, we are competent, that we're not broken, but it's a facade. It's like, well, no, you don't have to prove it through action. It's an internal thing. Right. And, and, And so that's been a real challenge this last year is looking at that and being at peace with it. I mean, I've certainly been aware of it before, 
But I am coming to a period of my life where um, I, I enjoy comfort a whole lot more than I enjoy chaos. So over time, yeah, mm-hmm. it changes. Yeah. It does. It does. So so doing, doing, doing is less attractive than being, being, being. But being, being, being requires that we begin to look, or at least I begin to look at more shadow parts of myself and become comfortable with different winkling bits of discomfort well that weren't able to be expressed before. So, you know, it, it could be age-related. It could be a period of time that I've been in recovery. Um, and it could also just be uh, my spiritual you know, my spiritual path where, where my spirituality is bringing me. Um, because I, you know, I, I, bec- I fall in and out of love with my, with my spiritual guide, you know. Sometimes we're like really close and sometimes, you know, I'm pouting and turning my face. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I relate to that as well. Yeah. Love my guide but hate him at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay. Give me what I want. Is this about just giving me what I want? (laughs) You know, not that shaggy. (laughs) Well, um, I wanted to do the speed round with some questions. Okay. As we wrap up. Um, But are you ready? Are you game? Uh, All right. Let's, Let's see what happens. All right. If the old you could see the new you, what would the new one see? The new one see. If the old me could see me now, what would the old one see or what would I see of them? What would the old, if the old you could, if the old you could see the new you? Uh Uh-huh. I have what would the new see, but what would the old say? I I think that's better. What would the yeah. old person say old about person who you've say, grown to be? Well, like, surprise, welcome. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, because I'm, I've got the hypercritical brain, it's like, what took you so long to embrace this path? Not what took you so long to get here, because I'm going to, you know, I have a wonderful life and I have had a wonderful journey I'm really grateful for where I am. And I, I think my, my old self would find some comfort in that. Beautiful, beautiful. If you could, if you had a, to describe a debate in your head about recovery or relapse, how would you describe it? Like mm. a common debate you'll have up in your head that's like kind of when you look back, what when was that back. like go-to debate? Um, you know, you always think it's going to be different. <laughs> That's classic. I love it. It's going to be different this time around. It's going to be different this time. Yeah. And uh, remember, because part of it is that illusion that it's going to be like the best time ever. Yeah. When it's really going to be like one of the most ordinary, boring, or dangerous times ever. Almost similar to what you said about your last time you remember, like your last drink. Well, it was actually what it normally ended up like. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to be able to be that carefree 15 year old at a peace rally, 
you know, looking around and feeling like I belong. I'm not going to get that feeling again. I mean, it did drinking and passing joints and whatever, you know, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be acid tripping the way I did when I was, that, that is no longer available. Uh, it is always going to be brutal, pasty faced, red eyed, embarrassing, peeing myself in front of some guy I want to impress. You know, it's just not going to be lovely. So it's, yeah, like almost like drawing out the, the old illusion, that it's actually not going to be that reality. It's really an illusion that it's going to be similar to kind of how things have been going currently for you. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, that's, it's exactly, it's going to go back to those last weeks or months. It's not going to go back in time. Nice. What is your favorite food? Mm. Well, I'm a grainaholic, so I like all grains. So I'm a real cookie person, but I love color. So I just was at the store and they had like these big boxes of blueberries. And so I like colorful foods like roasted vegetables and big salads. I crave big salads. But at the end of dinner, I want a cookie. A cookie. What's your favorite cookie? Uh, I like oatmeal raisin. Oh, I'm oatmeal raisin and myself. Yeah. It it pretends to be healthy. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to use that one. It pretends to be healthy. I love it. What is your... uh, Favorite music or one of your favorite bands? Okay. Um, well, my, my, my loving of bands actually ended long before I stopped drinking because I couldn't remember anymore. I am a country music in a genre. I'm a country music fan. Nice. In music in general, I love children's music and I love kirtan. I love children's music. It's so affirming. It's always talking about the best we want to be. And particularly in these times, I want to hear about the best we've always wanted to be and gratitude. And I I just, and there's even used to be 12 step radio where you could listen to 12 step based music all the time. That was nice. Yeah. I think about the kids stuff, you know, I have an eight year old son and even thinking when my daughters were growing up and listening to music, there's some, there's some, there's, there's like an innocence the children's music that we sort of like think of ourselves as an adult, but I think like deep down when we get inside our bodies and our emotions and our own innocence, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a it's it's kind of an interesting way that you can actually tap into that on some level. Yeah, where your feelings are uncluttered. Yes, and even if you're enjoying the kids' music and you're embarrassed, you can always put the sunglasses on. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Exactly. Put your sunglasses on. Um, If you could be a musician or actor, who would you choose to be and why? That's a new question. I just decided to throw that one in. I saw that and I thought, what the heck? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I thought about like, You know, I love Pete Seeger and I I like Helen Mirren because she is unabashedly her own age and she's my contemporary. So um, uh, I I like that idea that you could just be your own age. As a woman, I've watched my my identity falter and my uh, I become less visible. You know, I've become one of the invisible people on the street, you know, when you're, it wasn't, I was never a knockout, believe me, but 
you know, there's there's a time in your life when you walk down the street and people are looking at you because you're of that age, mate, not mate. You know, that's how we're d- developed biologically. Well, I've aged out of that for some time. So I'm, I'm kind of more invisible. But Helen seems to to just be unabashedly herself. And I really enjoy that. Excellent. And full yeah. embodiment. I love it. Yes. Well, any helpful uh, resources, do you think, for our, our listeners, place to start? I mean, your workbook um, mm-hmm. sounds like a great, like, tool. So I don't know, um, you know, if you well, want to leave some of those resources or talk about them briefly. Well, of course I recommend my books. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know if you- yeah, I think you're familiar with In the Rooms. Yes. So it's an online um, meeting platform. Sunday mornings, I have a yoga recovery meeting at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And then starting the first Thursday of September, I'll be doing using the workbook on the, at that free online platform. Um, uh, we'll be going through yoga tools for recovery on ITR Thursday nights at 7 Pacific time. So oh. I guess that's 10 your time. So, so that coming yes. up, in, which is free. I mean, I really think that free is important. Yeah. Um, and I think that anytime you can go onto YouTube and listen to Tara Brock or people who write about compassion and self-acceptance and dealing with the critical mind, I think it's one of the things that in recovery we all deal with. I mean, as you mentioned, it's a human condition. But it becomes, you know, our magic magnifying mind, it, it becomes, uh, uh, can become a stumbling block to uh, embodying recovery thoroughly. Because when you're there with the, with the shitty committee, uh, you've got all of those naysaying nabobs. And it's, it's good to have some tools to, to listen to that. It's the human condition. And these are ways that you can develop uh, another relationship with that negative mind. Um, and if you want to do yoga, I do have yoga infused classes, uh, on studio live TV. So it's, you know, you can watch classes where I teach, uh, yoga classes with recovery. I guess one thing is, what do you want to, is there anything you want to promote? Are you writing another book or promote? I just had a release of my, of the workbook, uh, yogic tools for recovery workbook that accompanies the book yogic tools for recovery a guide to doing the steps which came out in november so that book and that workbook are my uh, my most recent investigations of how yoga and recovery work together and these tools are kind of uh, designed to bring um the steps from the head and memory into the body and the heart. More embodying the steps, kind of like another, you know, when you've done the steps kind of from the intellectual and memory process, it's that dropping down that we talk about in the rooms of recovery. Like how do you figure out how you're feeling about things? How do you, how does it manifest? How can, um, a memory or a uh, an attitude um, influence your reception to life and your response to life. And so this this book takes some yogic concepts which are based on age old an age age old tradition of trying to look at the human experience 
uh, with not a dispassionate, but an objective eye, but still very compassionate for the, the energy that's in our body and the feelings where they get trapped in our body or where our feelings emanate from. And when the feelings come up, how do they impress how we filter life? Right. So you could see a dog. I could see a dog. I see a, a, a slavering beast because of my experience. And you see a playmate because of your experience. The dog is still the dog. But you and I have might have two completely different experiences of looking at the dog. So how does that come about? And so in our recovery, we begin to peel the onion to figure out what has caused us to uh, take care of ourselves in unhealthy ways. And in yoga, we kind of, in these yogic tools, get down a little deeper. So that's what the book is about. I wrote a book about five years ago called Yoga and the 12-Step Path, which aligned the yoga precepts and um, philosophy with recovery philosophy. So this is kind of a deeper dive into that, this, this newest book. So people could actually, you know, purchase the book and, and the workbook mm-hmm. and actually have tangible, like a workbook gives you tools to try to dive deeper into those feeling states rather than keeping it all upstairs in the head and trying to wrap yourself around it just intellectually, but allows you to kind of, is it more like become more embodied yeah. with your feelings? It's kind of freeing and, things and, and, up. Yes. And, and to give you a vocabulary to say, okay, this is what rooting and grounding is. This is where our creativity lives. This is where our self-mastery lives. This is where our compassion lives. This is our ability to listen and to, to express ourselves honestly. This is the area, this is the quality of uh, seeing patterns and being able to hold on to ideas. And this is the connection to my higher power and all other beings. So give a vocabulary. Okay, now how how are my steps influenced? Or how do these characteristics influence my understanding of the steps? So really spelling out emotions on some level, if and help me out if I'm off on this, but it mm-hmm. I really get the sense like you know, people in early recovery, especially, you know, it's kind of an emotional soup or emotional mess, just things yeah. all over the place, randomly, minute to minute, hour to hour, <laughs> day to day. And sometimes people really, I mean, that's like a struggle point. Like, all right, I'm feeling this way. All right, I'm getting a craving. Now I just want to go use. I don't want to mm-hmm. deal with all this crap, all this stuff. And some people always say, like, talk about it or go to a meeting which is Mm -hmm. kind of what I like about the 12-step program is it provides that kind of like structural, it actually is like a structured guide. Yes. So if I'm correct, and help me out, Mm -hmm. Kitsky, because I could be off on this, but your workbook actually adds to it. Like here's maybe a bit of a structure to navigating like the inner world of emotion. Or am Mm -hmm. I going too far on that? No, no, that's exactly it. I actually suggest that this book not be used for the first time through the steps, that the way that the 12 steps lay it out, and for many reasons, and I won't go into all of them right now, but but there are many reasons. Do the steps the way the book tells you to the first time. 
Okay. And maybe the second time and maybe the third time until you've kind of scraped off the, the upper levels of scum and you also feel a little bit more grounded. You know how to do the day-to-day stuff the way everybody else in the room learn, rooms learn how to do our day-to-day stuff. And then when your vocabulary of emotions, when you're not just mad, sad, and glad, you know, when you when you actually have some facility of turning up and down, I think of like my emotions being a huge panel of the dimmer switches. And, you know, so my mad is way up. And so maybe my frustration has then been turned up and then maybe my expectations get turned up and my short fuse gets turned up. But maybe when my my self-acceptance gets turned up, my compassion get can get turned up and these guys can turn down. So we've got a huge array of emotions, but you kind of don't know that they influence one another and you kind of don't know what they are for a couple of years. I mean, at least for me, my first three years of recovery were very much around getting healthy and getting my brain uh, depickled. I was so, so very sick. You know, I couldn't, I could read a sentence, but I, I couldn't make sense out of a sentence. I, I, I kind of forgot by the end of a paragraph what the beginning of a paragraph in the big book was telling me. I was, you know, sick physically. Uh, sick mentally and and sick intellectually my my ability to learn and remember had been so very damaged and uh, addiction to a substance will damage your brain and it takes a while for it to heal and we have to honor that I really believe that uh, to to be where you are is the is the uh, one of the big gifts in recovery we're allowed to come in sit down in our chair and be exactly in the state that we're in I love that. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything. That's right. Sit down and check in. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love pretty that. Soon, pretty soon you'll hear your story come out of someone else's mouth. And that's when you begin to say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Or, oh yeah, I never really had words to put to it. Or I never really accepted that about myself. And I love this person, and this person is telling the truth, and my heart is open. Maybe my heart can be open to me. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. Well, take care. (laughs) Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Be well. Awesome. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. I love it. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Kitsuki Hawk for sharing her time and insight with us. Check out her book, Yogic Tools for Recovery, a guide for working the 12 steps on Amazon. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And now you can find Full Potential Now on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.